0: Good morning, a little later than normal for me to say good morning, Uh, but it is a pleasure to see you all again uh, from here, Um, and it's a pleasure to open up the Word of God uh, with my family uh, again this morning. Um, Before we uh, go any further, let's uh, go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your mercies. Lord, we thank you that they are new every morning because they are needed every morning. Lord, we thank you for your constant faithfulness in our life, Lord. And we pray, Lord, this morning that you will continue to aid us in our pursuit to live for your glory, to to know you better, to better reflect who you are, to live lives that are Christ like, pleasing to you as a living sacrifice, God. I pray. Lord, that you will help me to be able to communicate your word clearly and accurately. Lord, I pray that I would disappear and that your word would be made known. I pray that you would limit our distractions, Lord, as there's often so much going on in our lives that pull at our attention. I pray, Lord, that you would gift us with sanctified focus this morning to be able to contemplate the truths of your word be able to be, be able to better glorify you this morning I praise your name amen well the date is Sunday December 7th 1941 and the course of the world is about to change captain william outerbridge is in his second day of having charge of the uss ward and he is tasked with patrolling the entrance to the opening of pearl harbor at about 6:30 a.m. he is called to the deck to see a periscope off in the distance, about 700 yards ahead. They know that there is no U.S. submarine stationed in that area. Far in the distance is a small submarine, roughly 80 feet in length, and it is seen guarding outside the entrance of the harbor. All sailors are called to their stations. As they approach the unknown sub, they fire their guns, striking it. The small submarine begins to sink, they go overhead, drop some depth charges, and an oil slick appears, telling them they know they have sunk the vessel. At that point, the captain has a message sent to headquarters, letting them know that an enemy vessel had been sunk just outside the opening of Pearl Harbor, and they awaited further instructions. Minutes went by without any reply, so a second message was sent. Still, there was no reply. So the captain himself makes a third attempt at 6.54 a.m. It was finally received by a clerk, but as it was a peaceful Sunday morning, there was no one around to receive the message. No one was paying attention. Almost at the exact same time on the very northern tip of Oahu was the Opana radar site. Two privates... George Elliott Jr. and Joseph Lockard, were stationed there waiting to end their shift. Hours had gone by without anything happening, but suddenly, at 7.02 a.m., a massive amount of blips popped up on their radar, something they had never seen before. Initially, they thought that something must be malfunctioning with their equipment, so they took it apart to check to make sure that everything was working correctly, and lo and behold, the blips were still there, and they were getting closer. They saw that there was a very large group approaching the island, approximately 137 miles away, approaching them at two miles a minute. George Elliot calls into the headquarters in Honolulu, and they are told that no one was there, as everyone was at breakfast, and that someone would call them back shortly. A private relayed the message eventually to a lieutenant who said it was probably just an expected approach of a dozen B-17 bombers coming in from San Francisco. They were told that there was nothing to worry about and to go about their business. So they waited for their shift to end and to be picked up and taken back to base. When they reached the base, it was half destroyed. At 7.48 a.m., less than an hour later, the first wave of Japanese planes, bombers, and small submarines attacked Pearl Harbor. By the end of the day, over 2,400 Americans were killed. The Japanese sunk four battleships, heavily destroyed four others, hundreds of aircraft and seacraft were destroyed or damaged, and the U.S. Navy and the Pacific Fleet was devastated. The U.S. Navy had set up multiple levels of monitoring to guard themselves, but as one nurse who was stationed at Pearl Harbor at this time said, nobody talked about war. That was the furthest thing from our minds. They were well-equipped, but they were ill-prepared. It is not enough to have all the tools at your disposal if you are not committed to using them. They certainly had multiple levels of protection, but they lacked the focus and the fixed attention to best understand the danger that was quickly approaching them. This morning... I would like to take the time with you to look over a single word that the Apostle Paul uses five times throughout his epistles. The word that we're going to be looking at this morning is the word skippeo. It is a verb, and it means to view attentively, to watch, to see, to observe. Sippeo is to fix the attention upon a thing with the interest in it, and to have an eye for a thing with a view to forming a proper judgment about it. The noun form of this word that is also used in the New Testament carries the idea of the sense of a watchman. A man on a watchtower. This is the word that we get the word scope from. Telescope, microscope, periscope. Scapeo. Now, this isn't just merely to see something, but it is to give special scrutiny to something and to be thoughtfully aware of it. There is a more common word that is often used within the New Testament to, view, to, to speak of seeing something. That's blepo. You just see something. To scapeo something means you that have a deeper, more intensive focus upon it. As we've been going through the book of Philippians in our foundation's Bible study, I noticed that Paul uses this unique verb twice in the small epistle of Philippians. And as I studied the verb further, I noticed that it is used six times in the New Testament, five of which are used by Paul. The one that is not is in Luke chapter 11, used by Christ. But otherwise, they're all used by Paul. And as I read through the five uses, I went to each passage and I wanted to see how does Paul use this verb throughout the rest of his writings. And I noticed something interesting. I noticed how he was calling the reader's attention to five different things for them to focus their their attention upon. The Bible is explicit in communicating to us that the Christian life is a battle of the mind. When Jesus saves us, he takes our minds, which were at one point alienated and hostile, as Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 says, and redeems them for his own glory. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind. When you, brothers and sister, were redeemed from the market of sin with the blood of Jesus, God bought all of you for his glory. You don't get to hold anything back. Now we need to pause and ask ourselves, what does it look like to honor the Lord with our minds? Your mind is more than simply what you think about, but it is how you think. It is your focus, your meditation, and even your attention span. Have you stopped to think about How Jesus redeemed your attention span? We are far too casual about what we focus on. We live in a culture where we are inundated with messages on a minute-by-minute and often second-by-second basis. Millions of dollars are spent to get you and I to think and focus on things that have simply no godly virtue things that bear no eternal consequence, and things that yield no Christ-like fruit. And far too often, we are willing to fritter away our thoughts and attention on useless vanities that are at best like a vapor and are at worst idolatrous. So this morning, we're going to look at Paul's five uses of the word scapeo, and we are going to see now is the time where you get to see what the, the point is that you get to write down in your notes five ways in which we are to exercise a redeemed focus and glorify God with our minds. And we're going to see five ways in which we are to exercise a redeemed focus and glorify God with our minds. Now, there are some cautions to be exercised when we undertake a word study. When I was younger, One of the first messages I remember, uh, I went to a Christian bookstore and I I was getting interested in in buying Christian books and reference materials. And so I went to the back. Christian bookstores, just for archaeological evidence, were locations where you could go in a physical environment and buy paper books that were on shelves lined up once you walked by all the potpourri. Uh, But in the back corner where the reference section was, I was looking through, and I had about $20 to spend, and uh, I was looking for the biggest thing that I could buy. And I saw Strong's Concordance, and I thought, that looks worthy of an investment. So I bought this massive Strong's Exhaustive Concordance uh, and and took it home, and I said, I'm going to do a word study, and I'm going to teach this. And so I looked up every use of a word. I don't particularly remember what it was. Uh, But I did not understand proper hermeneutics at that point in my life. It's important for us that we understand that you can't simply look at the same word that is used in every different circumstance within Scripture and know that it has the same meaning, the same usage. In this situation, we know and understand that each use is, is written by Paul, the Apostle Paul. So they all have the same author, We also need to understand what the individual context of each word is. A word is not going to be used strictly, translated in the exact same way in every circumstance that you see. The context will best inform us as we travel through. In this scenario, we are called to focus. Sometimes we're called to focus on things that are dangerous. And sometimes we are called to focus on things that are encouraging and meant to build us up. Think of it like being a sailor out at sea, stationed on the crow's nest of your vessel. Your one job is to be constantly focusing on what is around you. You are looking for dangers. You are looking for destinations. Anything that would be notable. The same is true of the Christian walk. So now let's look at the five ways in which we are to exercise a redeemed focus, and glorify God with our minds. The first one is going to be found in Romans chapter 16. If you brought your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open up to Romans chapter 16. Paul is wrapping up the epistle to the church at Rome. This is really a, uh, a missionary letter, support letter, where Paul is trying to convey the gospel to the church at Rome so that they can support him in his missionary endeavors and activities. And at the end, by the time we get to the very end of the epistle, he's wrapping up everything that he has said, making some final greetings, some final hellos to people that he he has met along the way. And in verse 17 and 18, he's wrapping up his final instructions to the church at Rome. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. That's Scepeo. To watch out. For those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So the first thing we see that we're to focus on, is we're to focus on false teachers. Focus on false teachers, the danger of false teachers. Paul here tells them to be constantly vigilant, constantly on the lookout for those that are going to do two things. They're going to one, cause divisions. These false teachers and their teaching and their endeavor, their practices, leave division in their wake. Now, it is often told that if you believe in biblical truth, you are narrow minded. This is true. Truth is narrow-minded. You are also told that truth is divisive. The Bible tells us differently. Here we see that it is the false teacher who comes and begins to create divisions. Jude, in his warning, in verses 18 and 19, says, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these Who cause divisions? Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. You must understand, if you stand on truth, you stand for unity. Unity around the truth of the Word of God. Anything else that is opposed to that truth, that threatens that truth, causes division. And that is exactly what Paul is warning them against. That someone may approach you, someone may come in among you, with a different message that Paul says than I have taught to you. You need to beware. Watch out for them. Be focused on that danger because they will create division among you. One of the most beautiful things to a church is the unity that we have in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is that threat- that is threatened with false teaching. What else? What else does false teaching create? It creates obstacles. This is the Greek word scandalon. Scandalon. It's a stumbling block. Where do we get scandal from? Scandalous. It's a threat that is real and the consequences are terrifying. When you speak of a stumbling block, you, you, you speak of someone who is walking in a manner in which they ought to be. Something is placed in their way and they fall. They trip. This calls to us Paul's warning to Timothy and the danger of the shipwrecked faith like that of Hymenaeus and Alexander. The consequences are felt not just by the false teachers themselves, but by all that fall prey to their teachings. These false teachers, it is better for them to be cast into the sea with a millstone wrapped around their necks. Because unfortunately, they take people down with them. So when you are standing guard, when you are focusing on the danger, the ever-present danger of someone that is going to come in among us and, and teach a doctrine that is contrary to what we know to be true, when you stand guard, you are guarding the souls of your brothers and sisters sitting next to you this morning so that they might not be falling prey to the stumbling block of false teaching. Now these false teachers, they, Paul says, they do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but they serve themselves and their own appetites, their own advancement, their own well-doing. If there is someone who proclaims Christ with their lips, but doesn't have a heart to humbly serve the Lord... Be on guard and do not listen to them. That's why it is so important for us to know and to understand the person that it is that is bringing the word to us. There is a scent of self promotion. If if there is a hint of someone trying to self advance themselves, then that is not of the Lord. They are not serving Christ, they are serving themselves. And you must be on guard. So we are to be like a sentry, carefully scanning the terrain for those that threaten the church, unity with a false doctrine. The church is the pillar and buttress of truth. It is our responsibility to contend for the truth. Now what are the consequences for failing to focus on false teachers? What if we fail to do this? What if we are like those in, in, in Hawaii? and we fail to interpret the obvious signs around us. One, church unity is threatened. Jude, the book of Romans, <laughs> 1 Timothy, are all abundantly clear that division follows false teaching. First Timothy 4.4 says it produces dissension and constant friction. Also, people are misled. Acts chapter 20, when Paul is giving his farewell to the elders, from Ephesus, Paul warns them that fierce wolves will come among them, not sparing the flock, but many will arise and draw away the disciples. Paul's, war- Paul's warning them, look, there are going to be people coming in, and they are going to focus on your flock, and they are going to attempt to haul away those that we would call brothers and sisters. First Timothy four one, Paul says, Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. The stakes are high, brothers and sisters. And we are all each other's sentry. We are all each other's watchmen, focusing, listening, being attentive, guarding the truth, upholding the truth, so that no one may fall prey to false teaching. The second thing, the second thing that we are to focus on is focus on your fickle heart. Focus on your fickle heart. Galatians chapter 6. Turn over to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul's instructing the believers in the churches of Galatia to help their fellow believers who have fallen into sin and have failed to walk by the Spirit we just walked through this in evening service uh, a couple months ago. My grasp on time is hazy at best. It was probably longer than that. But uh, Paul is wrapping up this epistle, and he, he has talked about walking by the Spirit, walking by the flesh, how Christ has, in chapter 5 verse 1, the freedom of Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He goes on to say, live by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And if you find someone, a brother or sister, who has failed to do this, which is inevitable, there will be failings and there will be times of correction in the life of any believer. When you find someone, he says in verse 1, if anyone is caught... In any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We're familiar with that concept. We must always be looking out for each other to make sure that we're able to biblically restore each other with a spirit of gentleness, not harshness, not coming down with a, how dare you, I'm so disappointed in you, but gently coming alongside of someone and saying, I, I think you need to look at this differently. I think you need to think differently. I think you need to act differently. But in that moment, Paul says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. There's our second use of the word scapeo. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We must always be on guard for our own hearts, first and foremost. 1 Corinthians 10.12, a verse that we're very familiar with. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he, that he stands take heed, lest he fall. That we must all, first and foremost, primarily guard our own hearts. Church history is replete with examples of men and women who have failed to guard their own hearts. No amount of ministry, no depth of service, will protect you from the temptation to sin. Just when you are serving the Lord in the pureness of heart, sin is there, ready to capitalize. The same sin that you are counseling a dear brother or sister through is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you but you must overcome it, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Augustine said, There is no sin which any man has done, but another man may do the same. We must all understand that we are equally able to fall prey to the temptation of the sin in which we are counseling at that very time someone through There's a temptation when we study scripture, when we sit and we listen to the preaching of the word of God, there's always a temptation to sit there and to think about how it best applies to someone else, right? You're thinking, you're listening, you're taking in everything that is being taught and you're thinking to yourself, man, so-and-so needs to hear this word. They, They really need to hear what is being said, or I hope they're listening right now. I'm guilty of that, just to let you know. I think that that's a common thing. <laughs> we, we all know that, and part of that is good, that we're thinking of one another, and we're thinking about the, the struggles of each other, and we know where someone else is weak and where they need to be encouraged and built up, sometimes confronted with the Word of God. And that is good. But we must think first about how it applies to ourselves we must first shine the light of Scripture onto our own hearts before we can guide someone else through it. So stand on the watchtower of your own heart, constantly looking for the patterns of disbelief that are the root of all sin. Looking at your heart and seeing where are you tempted to be drawn away, to be lured and enticed by the deceitfulness of sin. No one else is going to be able to do that work for you because no one else can see your heart. We can see the fruit of that, but you cannot see it until it comes out. What are the consequences for failing to focus on our own fickle hearts? First, you fall into sin. (laughs) Speaking of the distractions of technology. First, we fall into sin, right? If you aren't watching your own heart, you will fall prey to its deceitfulness. You limit the scope of how God is able to use you for his glory. When you give in to temptation, you too will be able to be led astray. And God has sovereignly positioned you in his kingdom for such a time as this. And sin destroys that opportunity. Also, when a believer falls into sin, you cheapen the grace that God has given you. You cheapen the grace. It's less, it's like spitting in the face of Christ who said, I've died so that this sin may be put to to death and you're resurrecting it. You can grieve the Holy Spirit that could ultimately lead to the shipwreck of your own faith. So we must be on guard. We must be focused upon the hearts of ourselves, our own fickle flesh. So we've seen that we're to focus on false teachers. We're to focus on our fickle hearts. Now third, we're to focus on the needs of fellow believers. Focus on the needs of fellow believers. Turn to Philippians. Our next two will be in the book of Philippians, a couple pages over. Philippians chapter 2. Paul... In the book uh, of Philippians is writing to the, the church at Philippi to encourage them to live out their citizenship for God. He says in chapter 1 verse 27 let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That manner of life living in, in a way to be worthy the the Greek word that Paul uses there is basically it's living out your citizenship Living in a way in which you are called to live, and that you have been set aside to live. Now how are we to do this? One of the ways in which we are to live out our Christian citizenship is through maintaining church unity, standing firm in one spirit, striving in one mind, side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says in chapter 1 verse 27. He moves on in chapter 2 and says, The appeal is to live in humility. Counting others as more important than ourselves in verse 3. We'll read verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we see Scapeto there, let each of you look, once again. So he starts and says, don't do anything from rivalry, trying to promote yourself for your own purposes, for your own satisfactions. But in humility, count others as more important than yourself. How are we to do this? By not looking just after your own interests, but looking after the interest of others. The assumption here is that we look after our own needs. When you are hungry, you eat. When you are tired, you sleep. Right? We, we are naturally, if we are thirsty, we'll take a drink. We're going to sustain, maintain ourselves. And that is easy. You don't have to think, I am feeling a sensation in my stomach. What is that sensation? It feels like hunger. What do I need to do in order to fix this sensation? I believe I need caloric intake. How am I going to achieve caloric intake? I'm going to consume food. That's not a process that we actually have to think through. You're like, I'm hungry, I want a bag of chips. For us, it's natural. We just feed ourselves. We sustain ourselves. And what Paul is saying here is you need to think about the needs of others. You need to be constantly vigilant about what is going on around you because we are naturally very self-focused people. We need to be looking out for the needs of others at the same time and with the same effort as we do for ourselves. To illustrate the lengths in which we are to go for this, Paul puts forward an illustration. The illustration that he puts forward, the example that we're given, and what does this look like, is Christ, who humbled himself, took the form of a servant, surrendered the comforts of heaven, the first-hand fellowship with God, emptied himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the example that we have to follow when it comes to looking after the needs of others. And I'm pretty sure none of us have gone to the point of giving our lives for someone else. So we can always do more. (laughs) Christ-centered love doesn't look inward. Christ-centered love does not focus on ourselves, but it looks outward This is something that is best practiced and cultivated in the home. And God provides us a lot of opportunities in our family settings for us to exercise this charge, right? If you're parents, if you're a child, you're aware of this. You've lived in a home setting where you're with other people a lot more than you're with other people. You get to see how much we need to work On this mentality. Familiarity breeds contempt, is not a Christian virtue. We must always be looking out for the needs of others above our own. We are to be on the watchtower to focus on what the needs of our brothers and sisters in our home and in our church, those that God has put in our lives around us, we must fight the habitual thinking of prioritizing our own desires above that of others around us. Don't walk into a room and think about how are people going to minister to me this morning. There are many people who think that way. They walk in and they say, who's going to say hi to me? Who's going to greet me? That person didn't say hi. That person didn't ask about what's going on. That person knows that there's a struggle in my life and they haven't asked for an update. That is not Christ-like love or Christ-like thinking. You must come with a purpose to serve, to lay your life down for the needs of the people around you so that it becomes reflexive, automatic. So that when you see the last two pieces of pizza and one of them's a little bit bigger and has a whole lot more toppings on it, you take the smaller. So that when you come into church and you see someone sitting in my seat, I've sat in that seat for years. Don't they know that that's my seat? How dare they? You say, I'll sit one row backward. So that when you come in and you see someone and you just know this is going to be another conversation where I'm going to hear the same message that I've heard time and time and time again. Maybe the same message of bitterness. Maybe the same message of discouragement. And you are going to have to echo the same words that you have said time and time and time again. It's not feeling indisposed by that opportunity to serve, but looking for opportunities of faithful love and service that Christ has shown us every day. What are the consequences for failing to focus on the needs of fellow believers? You become self centered. Self-serving person. As one person says, you become Captain U-Planet. And everything rotates around you. You will cease to be able to think about anyone else, and the misery of self-obsession will poison your heart. You will not serve others as God has designed the church to operate. You will miss out on the reward of obedience and the joy found in serving others instead of yourself. You will fail to be an example for Christ to those around you if you only think about yourself and you fail to concentrate and think about the needs of those around you. Building on that, in the next chapter in Philippians 3, verse 17, we see our fourth focus. We are to focus on faithful examples. We are to focus on faithful examples. Verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Scapeo, those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Paul is commanding his hearers to be constantly, habitually, actively looking for Christ-like examples to follow. This is a spiritual discipline. He says you're looking for that example, it's a Greek word, tupos, and it is the mark of a stroke. Imagine you, you have a piece of metal and you take a mallet, a metal mallet, and you just Hit that piece of metal as hard as you can and it leaves a dent. Or, there was a time my family was playing a game in the kitchen of my in-laws. In this game, you have to close your eyes. And you have to feel around to try to touch someone else that is hiding. There would be people hiding on top of the refrigerator. There would be people hiding within the cupboards. There would be people hiding in the kitchen sink. All around, trying to evade this blindfolded person my daughter was this blindfolded person and in her confidence ran forward and struck her head into the stainless steel door of the fridge leaving a tupas behind and that tupas was sold with the house at 22 jericho drive it left an imprint a mark that was there to be seen This is the imprint of the mark of Christ leaves upon ourselves that we match the image of Christ in our lives and we carry that with us. Inviting others to follow his example was not something that was uncommon for Paul. 1 Corinthians in chapter 4 he says I urge you then be imitators of me. In 1 Corinthians 11:12 be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And in 1 Thessalonians, you see the heart of Paul's ministry. In First Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 8, Paul says, So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom of glory. Paul's philosophy of ministry was to share his life with those he ministered to so they could see the pattern of his life, how he lived, how he made decisions, how he reacted to difficulties. When something unexpected happened, how did he respond He lived among the people and was serving and wanted to share his life and to be an example for those to follow. Now, Paul may sound prideful. You may ask, what kind of narcissist says, follow me, everyone, look at me, do what I do. We see that he was only inviting them to follow as long as he was following after Christ. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul would go to great lengths to show that he still struggled with sin. In Philippians 3, had told them about how he was a persecutor of the church, that his false zeal drove him to killing Christians. And it's followed by how he isn't the picture of Christ-likeness that he wishes to be, but he continues to press on. In Romans chapter 7, Paul freely says to the church at Rome, I continue to do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do want to do. I'm still struggling with this and living this out. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12-15, through 15, Paul gives them a brief biography, and in that he says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, and I am the foremost of sinners. He didn't say, I was the foremost of sinners. Paul says, I am the foremost of sinners. Paul was not a narcissist. He was not trying to form a personality cult to follow him, the church of Paul. He was putting forth Christ as the example. And lastly, he encourages them to keep their eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Who's the us that Paul's talking about here? Earlier in chapter 2, he pointed out Two examples for the church of Philippi to consider. The first one was Timothy. Timothy was a servant. Uh, Paul was his mentor. He was, he was equipping him for ministry, and, and he was sending Timothy soon to the church of Philippi. And he says, I have no one like him, for he will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek after their own interest, calling back to what he had said earlier in chapter 2, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. He says, you've seen it. The proven worth there means it's been tested and approved. It's sincere. So Timothy's an example they could follow. He also says Epaphroditus. You know Epaphroditus because he came from among you and you sent him to me. And he became so ill To the point of possible death. And while he is sick, he's concerned because the church and the believers in Philippi are concerned about him. So he's lying on his possible deathbed and he's saying, oh please, I hope they're not worried about me. (laughs) These are examples of Christ's likeness that Paul is saying that we can follow. Timothy, Epaphroditus, Paul. Now, we live at a very unique time in history. I was thinking about this. That at no other time in church history have we so readily had at our fingertips the amount of examples of those who have walked faithfully in Christ as we do today. We have, in a moment, you can sit down and learn about the likes of Adonai or Judson of Charles Spurgeon. You can learn about Athanasius. You can learn about about people who have been faithful and and ran the race with conviction and endurance and finished well. And you can find out all about their lives with a stroke of a finger. And it's good for us to have current believers as examples to follow, but I will tell you it is better to invest in those whose course is run. You know how they finished, and they finished well. But this is also the way that God has designed the church to function. God has brought together, even in this room, within this body of believers, God has brought together people from all levels of different spirituality and spiritual maturity, different levels of Christ-likeness, And so many different backgrounds. God has woven within Fellowship Bible Church. A tapestry of believers. Who have fought different battles. Gone through different struggles. Endured trials. And seen the faithfulness of God through it. Some are farther along in that race than others. But we should be an example to each other to look at and to see God's faithfulness. That is the way that God has designed the church to operate. That is a danger of splitting up churches by age. When I was younger in this church, uh, we had Sunday schools that were completely divided by age. Um, I remember I was, I was bored of the high school Sunday school class, and so I snuck into the adult Sunday school class uh, because it interested me more about what they were going through. And I was, I was chastised and told I needed to go back to my age group. Uh, and even beyond that, we had the 20s, the young adults, the teens and 20s. We had the 30s. Sunday school class, in the 40s Sunday school class. What happens when you tragically segregate the church by age? You insulate each other with their shared life lack of experience. One of the greatest experiences I had in my life was when I was young in college and we were going to work at the camp that we had gone away at. And I will tell you, that for six years, I was never pranked at snow camp. I put the fear into anyone that might think about crossing me because each year we had to make an example of someone and we had to prank someone and normally it was Rachel. She can probably tell you some of the stories. But for six years, No one touched me. I go back as an adult, and I wake up with shaving cream on my face and the image of a large man tiptoeing away, giggling. And I recognize the form of Joe Johnston. And I said to myself, I have been here for six years and have not been touched, and now this old guy is pranking me. But it taught me a lesson to be able to get to know older believers in the church. And it was at that point in my life that I started to get to know some of the older men in the church and to learn about the way that they lived their life, how they handled difficulties, how they interpreted and studied the Word of God. And it is so important, and that's a soapbox that's a different message. But we must be in each other's lives and we must be examples for each other to follow. So stand on the watchtower and focus on those who are running well, who are running with endurance. What are the consequences for failing to focus on faithful examples? Paul actually addresses this in verse 18. Many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. The stakes of failing to follow the right examples is possibly walking as the enemy of the cross. So Paul has instructed us to focus our redeemed minds on the dangers of false teachers, on the divisions they create, to focus on the potential of our own fickle flesh, to fall into sin, to focus on the needs of the brothers and sisters around us, to focus our attention on those who walk faithfully. And lastly... We are to focus on our future reality. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. A passage that may be familiar to you. A passage that I have preached through multiple times before. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. We'll actually pick up in verse 16. Read 16 through 18. Paul says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Here, Paul is presenting it as a present active participle. It's an understood action that's ongoing. That we are, as our current affliction, as we are living through this current affliction in our lives, it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is how we do not lose heart. Paul is telling us that since there is an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs this slight and momentary affliction, it makes sense that our attention and our focus would be on the eternal and not on the things that are seen. Why should our focus be on the seen and on the present circumstances and trials of our lives when what is being prepared for us is so far greater? Paul is not minimizing our current struggles. Our afflictions often do not feel slight do not feel momentary, but they do when we meditate and focus on eternity. The Puritan Isaac Ambrose said, Oh, that this word eternity were imprinted and engraven in my heart, that I might still have it in my mind when pleasure fawneth, when lust provoketh, and when the flesh rebelleth, when the spirit faileth that we must reflect on eternity. Thomas Watson, another Puritan, meditation on eternity would make us very serious in what we do. Meditation on eternity would make us overlook present worldly things as flitting and fading. He who thinks of eternity will despise the passing pleasures of sin. So stand on the watchtower of your heart and focus on eternity. Strain your mind forward to it. Consider it above everything else, the circumstances of your life. Press towards the eternal weight of glory so you do not lose heart. What are the consequences of failing to focus on our future reality? You lose heart. You lose heart. You grow discouraged. You sacrifice the eternal on the altar of today. Your focus is no longer on what counts for eternity, but your focus is on what happens right now, what brings pleasure and satisfaction in the moment. Your trials, temptations, struggles get elevated and become completely consuming for you. When your focus is on eternity, the current struggles will shrink in their absurd comparison to what God has in store for you. There are many things that this world would like us to focus on. Pleasure, pain, expectations, disappointments, fears, uncertainties, milestones in our life, goals that we'd like to achieve, health we'd like to restore, And if our focus is primarily on any of these things, we will sacrifice the eternal on the altar of today. That is what Paul is telling us. The Christian life is a battle. We're familiar with that. But oftentimes in battle, we think about the effort that needs to be put forth, to be expended on behalf of the struggle. The Christian life, though, is primarily... A battle of the heart and of the mind. <clears throat> Scripture is very clear that the battle to live lives that are pleasing to God means to glorify God with all of our being. Our hearts, our soul, our strength, and our mind. When God redeems us, He has redeemed our minds, our thoughts, our focus, our attention span. I read this week that the average attention span for an audience is 8 to 10 minutes long. If that is true, welcome back. (laughs) I lost you a while ago. Hopefully that is not true, but I will tell you, I will ask you, even now, I will ask you, in the last 45 minutes, your mind has been tempted, what am I going to eat for lunch? What am I going to prepare for dinner? When am I going to fix that leaky faucet at home? The car was making a funny noise on the way to church this morning. Johnny has a baseball game that i got to get him to tomorrow. And at the same time, Lucy has dance practice. Our minds are easily distracted. It's understanding. That's why it is a battle. That's why it is a fight to focus. To focus our minds on what is true. Now, it is possible that as we walk through these five ways that we are to use our focus, that you may be thinking to yourself, I don't see any evidence of this in my life. I think through those five categories of focus, and I think to myself, I see way more struggle. I see failure more than success. It's important for us to know and to understand that these are fruits of the Holy Spirit. These are fruits of of faith. It isn't normal for anyone to think in these ways. We're naturally selfish and self-absorbed people who like to focus on things that primarily affect us above everything else. Because that is our flesh, our fickle flesh. That is who we are. We naturally strain towards what is comfortable, and what feeds our flesh and our comforts, our pleasures. If you're having a hard time seeing any evidence of this line of thinking in your life, it is appropriate to take stock of where your heart is this morning. That there may need to be a call to repentance. If you do not see the evidence of these things in your life, it is appropriate to ask Do you trust Christ for your salvation? No amount of self determination is going to be able to continually produce this fruit of repentance. They are all produced by the blood of Christ and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. So I encourage you to take a moment, evaluate, take stock and ask yourself do i trust christ to transform my life to change my thinking to forgive my sins to achieve the righteousness that i lack the age we live in is inundated with a thousand things to think about every minute the average office worker will check his inbox 30 Times an hour. According to Apple, the average iPhone user unlocks his or her phone 80 times a day. And that means you like tap the code in, you go do something. It's not just like looking at it. 80 times a day. So I did some math imagining that you sleep about seven hours a night. That would be unlocking your phone every 12 minutes. So by average, Some of you may have done that three to four times so far this morning. Millions of dollars are being spent every day to get your attention to focus, and my fear is that we as Christians give it away far too freely. I fully believe that Satan's best strategy to dawn the effectiveness of the church in America is through distraction. If all we think about are spurious Leading things, then we will fail to use the mind that God has redeemed in the way that He desires for His own glory. David W. Saxton, in God's Battle Plan for Your Mind, I have the book right here. I, if this is a great companion uh, to, to what I'm saying this morning. There's a lot of really good information in here. It's a, the Puritan practice of biblical meditation. I would encourage you. Um, it's a very good read if you haven't read that before. Near the end of the book, Jackson says, many hear sermons, read Christian books, maintain a semblance of Bible reading, and listen to Christian music, yet they remain weak in holiness, love, and service. Why? The answer is a lack of serious thinking on what the word, on that the word combined with a life dominated by entertainment. So a lack of serious thinking on the word combined with a life dominated by entertainment. Combine those two things together and you have a distracted, weak, ineffective Christian. Paul makes it abundantly clear that Jesus has redeemed our focus for his glory, for his purposes and for our good. It is also abundantly clear that there are consequences to failing to exercise the biblical focus. It isn't enough just to even acknowledge what you see, but you have to act on what you see and focus on it, meditate on it. Just like there were dramatic consequences for a failure for the United States Navy at Pearl Harbor in failing to see and understand what was going on all around them, so too are there dramatic, dangerous consequences for every believer who does not fight to exercise the mind that God has redeemed for his glory. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you, God, for stepping in. Lord, when we were weak, when we were sinners, when we were children of wrath, sons of disobedience like the rest of mankind, Lord, you made us alive together with Christ. Lord, I pray that you will continue to aid us, that your Holy Spirit would work in us to do the work of sanctification in our hearts and in our minds, that we may think and focus, or we live in a world of distractions. Even now, our minds are fleeting, tempted to go elsewhere. God, we badly need to meditate on you. We pray that you would help us to build this muscle in our minds for your glory, Lord. And if, God, there is someone here this morning that sees no evidence of this, we pray that you would draw them to repentance and give them new life, new strength, new heart, and a new mind. Praise your name.